welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 697. I'm Richard Jarrett. Joining me, I'm happy to say, albeit from a slightly different location today, is my good friend Jim McDowell. Jim, hi, how are you and where are you? First of all, Rich, hello. Actually, good morning for me. It's uh, very, very early. It's 4 a.m. in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I happen to be at a conference for work. So that's where I am in the world at this point in time. And uh, a happy birthday to you, sir, may I say. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, this is uh, being recorded on the 21st of June, Midsummer's Day. And I'm 50 today, which I can't say I'm terribly happy about, if I'm totally honest. It's not a landmark I was particularly looking forward to achieving. But anyway, I've made it this far, so I suppose I shouldn't be too unhappy. Uh, You and I are in the same boat because I did that (laughs) earlier this year. Right. There we go. (laughs) So just a couple of quick bits of housekeeping before we get into talking about Saxon Ring. Uh, We have a couple of people to thank in terms of donations. So and I hope I got this right in terms of timing since the last show, but I'm pretty sure we had some contributions from uh, Keith Kovach and from Nick Saban. So, guys, thank you very much. We also have a new subscriber, Kyle Clark. So that's another one added to the list, Jim. So great to see we've got some more people coming on board sort of week on week which is great hopefully that's a reflection that you know the show's getting a bit more widely distributed and people are enjoying it yeah it's great to have new people in as always uh hopefully we'll get to meet the new people because you and i have said that we would do these zoom meetings with everyone during the season and we are going to do one during the five-week break i think we decided on july the 9th yeah it'll be 3 p.m eastern time in the u.s i think that is 1800 UK time something like that we'll need to double check time zones and stuff but uh, yeah it's always difficult to arrange with people dotted around the world but uh, anyway the last one was fun wasn't it so I'm looking forward to doing another one yep so everyone who subscribes to the show uh, look for an email invite to that and if you can join that'll be great we'll have fun you know where to go people to subscribe if you can you know it's always appreciated couple of things also, Carl and Alan Fleming have both sent in some very interesting questions and feedback comments. Now, what we had said that we would do, and perhaps, Jim, I guess we want to try and do it before we do the 9th of July subscriber meet online, would be to dedicate a show to talking about some of these questions that we've had in. There's quite a lot to talk about and some really deep questions to get into. So we're going to dedicate a show to that, I think, aren't we? And really get into the weeds whilst there's a little bit less MotoGP action on track going on. In terms of news, we've both got some stuff written down, Jim. So do you want to go first with what you've got? We talked about this, uh, the rumor that Miller was going to go to KTM. Uh, There was a lot of smoke, a lot of fire around there. It turns out it's true. He has left Ducati to go to KTM. The questions I have is that, was that really impulsive or was it really the right move? Let's be honest, the Ducati is a front-running motorcycle and is probably the best, if not second best, motorcycle on the grid. Yeah. And Miller's walking away from it to go to a KTM that at times appears to be brilliant, but has very little consistency. True. Not sure. Uh, you know, it, it kind of gets you back to that. I, I wonder, was he pushed or did he jump? That was going to be my comment, really, you know, in terms of is he leaving or is he just, you know, as we said a couple of shows ago, the kind of the last one stood up when the music stops. I mean, obviously, we're going to get to what happened in the race. You do wonder you know, if if they're back in the wrong horse on this one. Although rumours starting to circulate about whether Mir might be looking at the Ducati as a potential place to arrive for 2023. So I mean, that is wild speculation, but I have heard it from a couple of different places. So I guess we'll find out in the fullness of time whether it was, a, as you say, Jim, a, a jump or a push in terms of the move over to KTM. We did kind of accurately predict that that was quite likely to happen, didn't we, when we talked about this a few weeks ago. 
And there's a lot of synergy in terms of Jack's management and past relationships with Gradotti at Pramac back in the past. He's now the team manager at Red Bull KTM. So it kind of makes a lot of sense, but I'm still not quite sure if it's going to be a move that works out, but I really hope it does because we'll, we'll have one sort of little funny thing to talk about with Jack Miller towards the end of the show. He's a great guy and it would have been a travesty for him not to be a MotoGP. So at least he's around for a few more years yet, which is great. Yep. So the next thing I've got on this one uh, is Bastianini. Talk about Bastianini. Mm-hmm. He will be on a factory Ducati. That's been announced. He gets a factory bike. The problem is we just don't know which team. Mm. Thoughts on the which team? Does it really matter, I wonder? I mean, I, I know Grassini is a smaller outfit, but I guess part of that deal might include some more, let's say, factory technicians being in the Grassini squad, perhaps. Uh, you would imagine that might be the case. But, I mean, he seems pretty happy where he is. And, you know, again, the form's up and down, isn't it? So, can't really see why he would go to the works team at the minute. So, th- this is... Let's just go right to the wild speculation that I've got here. So, yeah. w- with this coming out, saying he's going to be on a Ducati and be on a factory bike. My instant thought was he's going to Pramac. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here's your, here's Bastianini on the Pramac with all the factory techs, factory spec motorcycle, because it came out before this weekend that Jorge Martin says that if he's not on a factory bike next year, he will find a factory bike to be on. So that led to my thought, along with what you said about Mir maybe thinking about a Ducati, that led me to speculate that perhaps Jorge Martin is going to slide over to HRC and take yeah. the spot that we all think that Mir is going to be on. And then there's this factory bike. And then that means, you know, it, it kind of all slides together because Zarco has been confirmed back at Mac next year. Yeah. Those pieces all tend to fit together that way. I just don't know if that's, I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but that's my speculation. None of this really jumbles into place until Mir announces what he's doing, does it? But as we're going to talk about in a while, the move across to the Honda might be putting a few people off at the moment. I mean, I've read the headline like you did with Jorge Martin, and it kind of rang as a little bit of an empty threat to me, because is he really going to jump ship from what is already a works Ducati? Okay, it's not the, the full works team, but it's pretty close, I would say. And again, he hasn't really done much to justify that level of, I don't want to call it arrogance, but assertion that he's, you know, due that position, because he's had a pretty woeful season to date, partly down to some injuries and some uh, lingering injuries let's say and some bike setting issues he had a good race in Barcelona but again last weekend which was a very odd race as we're going to talk about particularly in terms of the climactic conditions that they faced there um, but didn't really feature too heavily so again nobody seems to be marking themselves out as a clear favourite to jump into the the slot alongside Banyar at the moment it seems to me but the outlier is is Mia I think so until he declares his position I think everybody's going to have to wait yeah I think I think this was maybe more of a done deal than where we were led to believe, you know, he came out saying it'd be like a pleasure to ride for HRC. But then after what happened after the race, it kind of goes back to her. Maybe you, you stop and you think, well, I've got a letter of intent, but that doesn't mean that I really want to go there. And maybe there's a better place for me to go on this grid. Yeah. If I want to be a world champion now from our team, from my perspective, when I look at it, he gave Honda a world championship on the Moto3 bike. Yep. Honda tends to look at that kind of stuff, you know, and when he left, it kind of surprised me because, you know, he went to, he, you know, he went to kit there. He, he, he did his Moto3 on a Honda. He did Moto2 on a... What was the Works, works KTM squad, wasn't it? Right, yeah, Works yeah. KTM squad at the time. 
and then immediately jumped and went to Ducati. And it's like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. <laughs> so mm. I don't know. Again, it's speculative, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if it happened, but I still would be shocked if it happened, if that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, off the back of the Saxon Ring weekend, Honda or HRC, I should say, are going to be struggling to keep Bradle on the bloody bike, let alone enticing <laughs> anybody else across. So, I mean, their problems are legion at the moment, as, and we're going to come to that uh, in due course. A couple of things, or one other MotoGP bit of news, Jim, that I saw today was that I think it's been announced now, so I'm assuming this is official, that Fabio Antonio is now uh, on board with Grassini again next year, which is yes. thoroughly well-deserved based on the last few races where he's really suddenly found his... Found his feet, found his setting, got some confidence, and he's doing a great job, I think. Yeah, that that pole at Mugello, he's carried that momentum forward, which was great to see. We kind of rated DG Antonio in Moto2, that he was one of the guys that was on the come. We just didn't expect him to jump to MotoGP when he did, and he's mm. proven that he's definitely capable. And I think now it's now let's see what the consistency is week in, week out, you know, so... It's not easy to try to ride one of these bikes with all everything that happens, shape shifting and all the other things that are involved. And it, it's got to take a while for a rookie to figure out what he's doing. And so he's acclimated himself well, carried himself well. And as you said, richly deserved. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of the rookies, I think, are doing a stellar job this year, really, when you look at them. I mean, Digi Antonio up until Mugello, as you say, was the one that you might have said, hmm, not quite sure the move to MotoGP was justified. But that's been swiftly swept aside in the last few rounds. And hopefully he'll continue down that vein. Never a guy that really set the world on fire in the lower classes, was he? But again, you could say the same thing about another Fabio who's done rather well for himself in the last few years. So you just never know, do you? No, there's everybody works differently. And some people don't get along with the little bike and they get along with the big bike. And some people don't get along with the little bike. But they work really good on the intermediate bike. And it all just depends, yeah. really. And and did it, you... It, very sort of metaphorically very much a child of the Grassini squad isn't he so obviously yeah. feels very at home in that squad and it, it's clicking it's working you know if he was suddenly to jump to say and I'm not suggesting this is is likely but if he were suddenly to go to HRC he'd oh. probably find himself in a Paul Espargaro situation where very quickly falls out of favour the form the confidence and everything just evaporates rapidly as we've seen there so he's in the right place for the next year or two uh, did you so yeah Good luck to the guy. Yep. Well, let's continue with our theme of guys shuffling bikes. Oliveira, you know, he's, he had that deal to ride on a factory bike at Tech 3, double his salary. He said, nope, not going to do it. Where is he going to go? Well, he could either go to Ducati or Aprilia. It's sort of been kind of compressed to that. My money's on him going to be at RNF Aprilia. Yeah, I think that emerged as quite a strong possibility over the weekend, didn't it? Whereas before he was being quite heavily linked to the Grassini seat but with the Giantonio being reconfirmed and it's not at all clear that Bastianini has done enough in the last few rounds to get up to the main Lenovo squad I wonder if the door is closed at Grassini hence the news starting to emanate from RNF I, I still go back actually to what I speculated when we had our 2023 liner ride-up show a few weeks back and the LCR link i suspect there are still talks going on there as well so i wouldn't necessarily entirely rule that one out because there's a couple of big names that are strongly linked to rnf besides Oliveira's. but but what do you think though jim about him turning down a tech three ride can you understand from an ego perspective why he's said no i get the idea that you have ridden for the 
factory team, 100% factory. You have everything that you need all the time and you're working directly with the factory boys. And then you would feel like it's a serious downgrade to go to tech three, but tech three is not a slouch team. As I see it, Guy Coulomb is one of the best chief mechanics, if you will, in the, in the entire pit lane. Hmm. You know, I, I put him there with uh, Jerry Burgess, uh, you know, with Rossi. So there's a point where you got to swallow your pride, but there's also a point where if he feels that he's not going to get what he needs at tech three to be fast, then don't be there. Mm. And I can't remember in the time sequence, if it, he said he wasn't going to do, do that, or wasn't going to be at KTM before we knew that RNF got the Aprilia's, but yeah. we knew pretty strongly that there was going to be an Aprilia satellite team somewhere. There was going to be one. We, I mean, I think that was there. So I think, Oliveira was kind of hedging his bet a little bit that, hey, that Aprilia is really good. And if I play my cards right, I can at least be on a satellite Aprilia and probably do better than I can on this KTM. Mm. I mean, but I do. Go ahead, you, well, I was just I was going to say it's a, it's a curious position for him to take in terms of the satellite status aspect, because the other teams that are his only remaining options are satellite squads as well. They're not works outfits. So it suggests to me that there's a bit more in terms of relationships going on behind this. And his nose is, I think, quite understandably out of joint that he's been knocked out of that full, you know, Red Bull KTM team. I do think two things. One, I think one of the Aprilias at RNF will be a full factory spec Aprilia. Yeah. And I think Oliveira would be angling toward that. Um, I, he's not going to get a full factory bike at Grissini. There's no way, right? So I, I think that plays a little bit to it. But I, I did tweet this out earlier this week as a, the thought just kind of hit me. I think KTM is really going to be haunted by this move that Oliveira is gone. I agree. Yeah, I get it. Pedro Acosta is coming like a freight train, but the boys still got at least another year in Moto2. So uh, Pitt Byer is the man in charge. He's the guy who hands out all the, co- he hands out all the contracts to riders in the KTM world. I mean, even in the dirt scene, the enduro scene, the, 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 the supercross scene, everything. It's all Pitt Byer doing that. He's in charge of it all. But there was a comment that was made by Oliveira in regards to Pitt saying, well, talk to Pitt if you want to know about details of a contract because he handles all of it. So there is definitely a rift between the two of them. That is for sure. So yeah. I think that's also partly a driving driving factor. Uh, again, just going back to our talk the other week about the 2023 thing, my view was that if Miller came across, he was more likely to land in Tech 3. And I thought would have thought he'd have been quite happy with that, particularly if he was partnered up with Remy Gardner. And I, you know, at that point, I was thinking, and I still believe that KTM are foolish to let Oliveira go because he is a devastatingly quick rider, but he does need the bike to be right. But the bike ain't right at the moment, although they did have a better Sunday at the Saxon ring, it must be said. But their FP3 and qualifying woes are the major issue with that bike and all of the riders are suffering it yeah Binder kind of drags it out on a Sunday more often than not but he was being pretty vocal as regards his displeasure with the current state of affairs in that team and with that bike as well so all is not well in the KTM team and I think ditching Oliveira at this juncture is a something of a mistake unless as you say, rifts have just kind of got in the way and working relationships have become untenable which I guess is kind of where it's at now well, remember, there was another guy who was on a KTM who the situation became untenable. Yep. That man's Johan Zarco. Yeah, and look at him now. Yeah, I mean, I think, I know I said it at the time. I thought, wow, Zarco's career is going to be over. He is literally toast. Nope, 
<laughs> shows you what I know. <laughs> Not many people come back from walking out of a works team, do they? Let's be honest. No, but no. You could say he was a little bit fortunate to land the Pramac job, but he's done everything that he needed to do to retain it, as, as we've just said he's going to do. So, right. yeah, I yeah. mean, Zarko's good. I just wish he could get a win under his belt. <laughs> I really feel for the guy coming second so often. He is the new Randy Mamola of MotoGP, that is for sure. Indeed, yes. So let's wrap up kind of the, at least the rider market with this last question that I have, mm-hmm. where does Adrian Fernandez go? Raul Fernandez, you've done it again. Scott! <laughs> I do it all the time. I got you haven't even got Augusto first. Fernandez into the mix yet. <laughs> uh, well, uh, there's too many Fernandezes. Yeah. You knew what, you all know what I, who I meant anyway. Raul, I know what you meant, yes. Jim. <laughs> well, uh, until the sort of the new, well, in terms of what I was listening to over the weekend and again, a few things that you read on Twitter and elsewhere, until the news emerged of a potential hookup between Oliveira and RNF, I thought all of the sensible sensible money was looking at a Rins Fernandez RNF lineup for next year. I'm still pretty sure that that's what will happen because I think that would be a very very strong team. But Oliveira would equally be a very good fit into the RNF squad as well on that Aprilia bike. So, but I. I just think that, again, the relationship between Fernandes and KTM, not necessarily Tech 3, although um, Hervé Pongerol's had some fairly stern words to say about both of his riders. And we know, and I won't repeat <laughs> what I've said before, we know Fernandes is a bit love him or hate him in the way he goes about his business, particularly off the bike. So I can't really envisage him being in the Tech 3 squad next year because he didn't want to be there this year, as, as we've said many times. So I think he'll be an RNF rider. Jim, I don't know what you think, but that would be my my guess. I this has been muddied and has become more complicated with the fact that Yamaha does not have a satellite team now. Yeah. If Yamaha did, I would have said Fernandez goes there. He he wanted to be on a Yamaha from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. The problem that Yamaha have is they've got Quattro under contract now for another two years. I'm sure that that was at a very significant pay raise. Yes. For the for the man. They have Morbidelli on a factory contract for next year. I'm not so sure that they want Morbidelli. I think if he didn't have I, that contract, he would definitely be looking for another ride already. Right. So we all know contracts are made to be broken. I'm just not so sure that Yamaha has, has that Yamaha has any more money left over to break Morbidelli's contract. Unless there are performance clauses in there that give them a, an out. Again, that's for the lawyers to decide. and you, There yeah. can be an argument there. But somehow, somehow deep inside, I, I think Fernandez winds up on a Yamaha. I don't know the shenanigans that are going to happen as it goes around because we've seen these shenanigans before. HRC wanted to get rid of Davizioso. Davizioso said, I've got a contract. Sorry about your luck. That one went through a whole different slew of lawyers and what happened. Honda wound up showing up with three factory motorcycles for a yeah. year. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say it is a potential that Yamaha could essentially have three motorcycles in a factory team. It's been done before. It could even be last year's bike in, fa- in, a, in just tuning fork colors with Fernandez on it as a way to get him there and give him a year on the bike, see what he does, and then have an easier decision later on. But Yamaha faces the problem of either, well, it's a money situation. That's the first and foremost. It's a money situation there. But Monster is there, and I'm pretty sure Monster's probably paying the full amount for Quattro to ride. So there is some left over there. And I think also, you know, Yamaha's biggest rival is Honda. Honda is not doing anything right at all, which is just absolutely amazing. Although I do have a conspiracy theory on that. 
hold that thought because we'll come to Honda in a little while because there's quite a lot to talk about with those guys as well. I mean, I'm not going to talk too oh, much yeah. about the races for reasons that we'll right. explain. This is more about themes and news and sure. conspiracy and so on and so forth. But it, just to cut in a minute, Jim, I mean, it segues quite neatly into the fact that there's still no official announcement of any kind from Suzuki in terms of what is actually going on. Now, it's clear that they have no intention of running a work squad next year, but quite clearly there's an awful lot of lawyers involved in that one as well behind the scenes. And, you know, you do just wonder whether or not some way of filling up those two grid slots might be found if there is a sort of unanimous agreement, let's say, between the teams to make it happen. And that could involve one or two teams running three bikes. And it would certainly suit HRC, who have the means to do it, to run a third bike, because, uh, by God, do they need the extra track time? Oh, yes. Yeah, there's... There's a lot of there is a lot of backdoor shenanigans going on right now. I do not think Dorna want to have two less riders on the grid in any way, shape, or form. And I I I'm not so sure Camilo Aspolita is running around with a suitcase knocking on factory doors saying, Hey, I need more motorcycles. But you know Honda can easily do a third bike in the factory squad. Can you twist the arm of Lynn Jarvis and Yamaha management to say, can you put what, can you guys just bring one more bike, please? Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we'll throw, pick a number anywhere. Probably it, I, I'm guessing to run a non-sponsored year old Yamaha in the factory team. I'm going to throw a number out as probably say a million to a million and a half euros, something close to that, I guess, you know, for not having the extra parts and everything else. I'm just saying, you know, basic maintenance and whatnot and travel. And I can't believe that Dorna wouldn't pony up that money. I'm sure they would. Yeah. For the sake of the show. Yeah. So, and it's, and it, it you know, it is not without precedent to run a three bike team, as you've said, no. Jim, back in the, in the HRC days with Stoner and Divizioso and Pedroza. So the other thing that I mentioned last week, but well, I hinted at, and then I didn't actually get to say about it was some rumors going around that there might be a, a kind of a gas gas branded KTM squad filling up the other two slots. Yeah, that that or you could have a husky branded. Or yeah, I think there are some difficulties around that because it's still a work squad, and you know how does it affect concessions? Because it would effectively be the same as the KTM bike running under a different work squad name and stuff. So it, it gets complicated when you sort of dig into the detail of it. I mean, I, I was pretty sure that the, you know we were going to be two bikes down next year. I, just, I don't think I'm so. Now. To come around, perhaps your way of thinking, Jim, that they might just between them all find a way to get it sorted, but not with Suzuki's. I think those bikes are gone. No. Those, I think those bikes are definitely gone. I, it, it is either Yamaha and Honda bring an extra bike every race, or as you said, it's a gas gas slash KTM slash Husqvarna bike that may be a year old. So you get around the concession rules in that respect. And the, all the guys that are running the show at Suzuki run that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's plenty of people looking for work. You know. Oh yeah. I think that's a big stay tuned. There's going to be, a lot of stuff sorted out over these five weeks where everybody's on the continent and everybody's lawyers are talking to everybody else's lawyers to figure out what's going to happen. It, it just, it feels that way to me. Not least of which is a conclusion to the Suzuki saga, because of course, if there are things going to be announced as we're speculating and let's say wish wishing will happen, then, you know, that stuff doesn't get thrown together over the matter of a few weeks before next season starts. I mean, that work starts in earnest you know, now to, to put the logistics mm-hmm. and the funding and everything else in place, even to add a couple of bikes into an existing team. So, you know, uh, you would expect some announcements and some clarity to emerge over that uh, summer break, as you say, Jim. 
Right. You may even see that that team is a placeholder for a year, maybe two for BMW. Now, I know BMW has said they have no interest. I don't believe that. I think they do. Whether they have a long-term commitment to it or not, I don't know. The problem with BMW is they have a churn of upper management, uh, even in the race departments, and but certainly at the sort of the sort of the car board level, there's a real uh, antipathy towards uh, motorcycle racing in particular. I mean, racing in general, actually, when you look at what they did toe in, toe out very quickly in Formula One. So I don't know. I mean, it would be great to see a brand like BMW in, but I struggle to see it happening. It, but it would be good if it did. But you would always worry that, you know, they'd be in and then out very quickly. I mean, they're having right. a shocking, shocking year in World Superbikes. So again, a bit like HRC, they've got, you know, quite a few other problems to sort out before they start making big plans for the future. But I don't know who else would come in, really. Uh, I mean, we yeah. speculated about Triumph, but really they don't have the financial might and the, no. you know, the sort of organisational heft, I don't think, to do it. Mm-mm. So who else is there, really? Unless you go really left field and say, well, CF, you know, as a Chinese brand might want to sort of emerge onto the big stage but again a little bit hard to foresee that happening as early as 2024 i think we touched on it last time and i'll just mention it again for anybody that didn't catch that uh, episode uh, 696 but was this idea that the vr46 squad might become a satellite for, for yamaha from 2024 and that that would be the natural landing place for morbidelli uh, to retain the yamaha link and he is a vr46 rider contractually anyway so maybe Yamaha just sit next year out in terms of running two extra bikes and plan for 2024. But we're going to go on and on if we're not careful. But oh, we could, know, yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll emerge. I'll add the last thing to yeah. the last nail to this coffin. CF Moto could potentially wind up being a CF Gas Gas or CF Husqvarna team at the top level. Yeah, It's not inconceivable, but are they ready to get there yet? No. I think whatever happens next year is a placeholding event for something else yeah with the hopefully the aim the primary aim being just to make sure that those two currently empty grid slots are filled up again but let's see yeah the only other bit of news i just wanted to touch on jim just very briefly yep. um i mean there's been some bsb stuff going on at knock hill some good races there so brad ray and jason o'halloran sharing the wins between them up at knock hill in scotland the big one though is in world superbike Toprak Razgatioglu, despite the fact I believe he still has the test on the M1 coming up some point in the next week or two, he is reconfirmed at Pata Yamaha and World Superbike alongside uh, his current teammate over the last couple of years, Andrea Locatelli. So that's a done deal for 2023 now. So the earliest we would see Toprak in MotoGP, and of course it might never happen, but the earliest it would happen would be 2024 now. And yeah, the other big rumour circulating in the World Superbike paddock, and I'm definitely going to, um, in fact, maybe next week, uh, going to try and have a chat with Greg from Eurosport, who's the World Superbike expert. Um, the big rumour going around at the moment is that Johnny Ray might want out from Kawasaki and could be talking to Ducati. Mm. Now, that would be good to see, because I've got a lot of time for people that switch from very successful careers onto different bikes and try and win on multiple marks. So, I mean, Johnny, he won on the Honda, on the Fireblade, he didn't win a championship on the Fireblade and World Superbike, but he won a pretty reasonable number of races on it before he went to Kawasaki. And obviously, he's been a, a serial world champion in World Superbike. So, for him to jump on the Ducati, that would be cool. Yeah, I'd like to see it again. I, I, I do too. I have the same admiration for somebody who goes from a very successful team 
and goes somewhere else and builds that team into a success and wins. So, you know, much like Rossi having moved from Honda to Yamaha or take a Lawson from Yamaha to Honda yeah. back in the day, take your pick. So I think that's kind of it for the news. But as always, yeah. listeners do write in with any questions or observations and we'll pick them up when we do this probably quite large, long show with the uh, discussing all the points that we've had over the last few weeks. So let's talk a bit of Saxon Ring. Now I'm going to preface where we're going with this, which is to say that, and I think you feel the same, Jim, we're not going to talk kind of in too much detail, certainly lap by lap with any of the races, because it wasn't the most scintillating Sunday's viewing compared to many other races of recent history. So I think we just want to kind of touch on a few things that happened mainly during the races, not so much during qualifying, and then just talk about the themes and a few talking points that come out of that in terms of one or two controversies or... Well, yeah, definitely. But we're, we're, there's definitely at least a controversy in qualifying for Moto3. Are we talking Dennis Onchu here, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, yes, okay. we are. <laughs> well, okay, so Moto3, for me, the only talking point really from qualifying was that Onchu quite unusually found himself in Q1, put in a brilliant lap, but just and i did actually spot it on the coverage that door of the dawn of feed and they hadn't i guess they weren't looking at the screen but i was like oh no he dropped his rear into what was a very wobbly curb it must be said it's you know not a straight line and he just dropped into the green but it took them something like 15 minutes to announce that having been fastest he was out and that, so first of that's all let's get the problem. into that wow that's the problem is how long it took yeah. because Anchu has put a lap time down that will get him through. No one's going to touch that lap time. So he's got his helmet off. He's sitting, trying to contain some fluids. It was what, 33 degrees or something there. It was yeah, hot. blazing hot. It yeah. was walking on the surface of the sun type hot. So he's trying to conserve some energy. He's trying to conserve tires. He's trying to get fluids back in and get ready to go to the second session. And then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, uh, you can't go. Cause you, you went like a millimeter over a curb holy crap i mean it's like uh you know he may not want to throw the toys out of the pram when that came out and i congratulate him for maturing yes. and for saying hey look i had a good lap time it is what it is yeah okay i've looked at the video and i am off the track but i didn't feel anything but if race direction is going to go to that level of we need to have a millimeter which is fine in is in, out is out. I live in that world as, as I do as my career in an engineer and I major stuff. It ends in, out's out, and that's the world that I live in. And I understand where they are. But if you're going to tell that rider they're out, you don't tell them they're out 15 minutes afterwards. Yeah, no, it's shocking, shockingly bad. And I don't understand how it could have taken that long because if he triggered the sensor, they know straight away. Exactly. So I can't understand that this goes to, and we're not going to talk about it now, but the feedback that we had in from Alan Fleming is precisely on this point about objective or subjective, you know, rulings on these things. You know, as you say, Jim, in the world of engineering and science, you don't get into the in-betweens of it. He was out or he was in and he was out. I mean, I saw it, well, but, yeah. you know, the commentators didn't spot it, but they were probably looking at the timing screens and so on. And I had, had this nasty feeling that the lap was going to go. And the longer it went on, I thought, blimey, he's got away with it. So that would have been controversial in of itself. And then, as you say, to drop it on him. But I totally agree with you. I mean, given what a ferocious terrier he is on track and how, say, in seasons gone by anyway, how borderline dangerous he's been, I thought his response was unbelievably mature and measured. And I thought top mark for right? handling it like that. Clearly, 
I'm sure that Tech 3 have done a good job of just helping to manage his mindset and his behaviour and his emotions and stuff, because they're very young kids, all of these boys and girls. So, But, yeah, exemplary, I think, the way he handled that. And he would go on to have a pretty interesting race the next day, which we'll come to. <laughs> well, I suppose we could get to that now, unless you've got anything more to say about Onchu, Jim. I don't have anything to say to Onchu, but I do have something to say about Guevara. Okay. Guevara, having taken the pole position, he has changed his mindset over the last few races. And you see it in how he's approaching qualifying. He's not dawdling. He's not looking for a toe. He's not looking for a mark. He's going out there and he's setting down laps. And he's working on what he needs to be fast on that motorcycle over the, uh, what did we have, 27 laps distance at the Saxon Ring Promoto 3. And by doing that, it puts him on pole. Yeah. And he was obviously the odds-on favorite to win this if he was to get out front and go. It does make you wonder why more people are not copying what he does because we've seen this with other riders. I'm thinking Dennis Foggia is another one that tends to go out and just turn laps on his own, just get find the rhythm and just don't hang around, you know, waiting for other people, which we saw a lot of that again this weekend in all classes, mm-hmm. I hasten to add. So, yeah, Guevara is really suddenly, well, not suddenly, but because he was a bit unlucky earlier in the season in the races, if you remember. He had a couple of incidents and certainly on at least one occasion, the bike let go on him. So, yeah. honestly, Rich, I think it's maturity. Yeah. You, you, if you watch some of these guys, as, as long as what we, we have over the course of many seasons, Jorge Martin, when he won his championship, what did he do? He went out, didn't care about the toe, didn't care about a marker. He went out, he sat down at three down laps. At that lap that he put down, albeit consistent laps, right? Yeah. If that lap only got him on the second row, fine. I don't care. I will go to the front and win. Guevara's in the same mentality. I, if I'm on the first two rows, I'm fine. I'm going to go run away at a race if I can. Yeah. Fazia is the same way. This is, it's, it's maturity. These guys all seem to mature, and when they do, they, they finally realize that, or it's a confidence thing, right? I, I know that I can turn these lap times. And that's the focus. Your focus ha- is not qualifying. There are, there are no points for qualifying. Zero. Yeah. None. So it's the race. And if you set it up for the race, you will do great. Left field question that just sure uh, comes in with you saying that. Do you think they should give a, get a point for pole position and possibly for fastest lap? I've always thought that they should do that. Uh, I No, because I don't want to be like Formula One. And that, that's a whole off-season show that we need to get into <laughs> because yeah. I'm worried about where the direction of our sport is going. Take the fan survey, people. MotoGP.com forward slash survey. That's a huge long survey. Take the survey, have your voice heard. Mm. I'll promote that from MotoGP. I don't yeah. care. Go do it. Um, it was in our interest, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's completely within our interest to, to decide what we want to see, not see, do, not do with the sport. Um, how much they're going to listen, don't know. Um, Formula One hasn't listened for decades, and they've had fan survey after fan survey after fan survey. But uh, Anyway, I forget. <laughs> I forget where we were. Well, those fan surveys was. are a little bit like Henry T. Ford. You know, you can have any color you oh. want, provided it's black. You, you know, it's correct. <laughs> we were discussing whether it should be a point or not for yes. qualifying. Yes. Um, I have no desire whatsoever to see a point for qualifying, a point for fastest lap. I, I have no desire for any of that. Maybe it's because I'm simply just old school all the way around. Consistency at dirt tracking is what won you a title in the U.S. back in the '80s, and even today, still same way. You know, and so there was never a point for qualifying. There's never a, a point for winning your heat. It was do everything you can to get yourself to the main event because that's where all the points are. And I think it should, this is what it should be. Yeah. I, I think it becomes distracting. People want to chase that point like it's going to somehow solve all their ills. 
interesting no so, i'm so interested to know what other people think about that because uh, i've always personally felt that it's good to get rewarded in that way but we'll save that debate for another day so getting into the race uh, i mean things took a bit of a nasty turn right from the get-go when carlos tatai took a fairly optimistic course into the first turn and in doing so he took out john mcphee who just doesn't ever seem to catch much luck does he uh and no. ricardo rossi so they were down and out as was tatai though i think he might have rejoined briefly but pulled in fairly shortly thereafter now again i probably overdoing it a bit to say controversy but very reminiscent of a certain move that happened at the beginning of the moto gp race in barcelona with takanaki mm-hmm. i thought now tatai has been penalized i I'm going to say possibly it's a pit lane start or certainly a a double long lap or something like that for the next round, which does rather, again, bring into question if it's a penalty for him, why is it not a penalty in the top class? I mean, obviously the circumstances are slightly different, but somebody went barreling into the first turn out of control, lost the front, took people out. I I think it's more similar than dissimilar. Where's the consistency? Where is the consistency? I'll speak. It's still early for me, people. Um, <laughs> no coffee yet. Again, it's consistency. It's a consistency across the board about what you're doing. There's, and again, we'll get into all this in the, in the five week break. I'm having a huge problem with the consistency of the way things are called. In my mind, if I could go on, I'll keep it short. I swear, I promise. If you're in control of the race, then I suggest, and I've always believed in, the, in my career when I was racing motorcycles, you had more respect. For the guy who was the referee or the or the steward, I think is the better way to say it, who was firm but fair. And his he never wavered from what he said. This is my interpretation of the rule book. This is how I'm gonna this is how I saw it, and this is where it's gonna be. You have more faith in them, you you feel better about what they're gonna do. Here, man, it's just it seems week on, week out. It's change your mind. So let's throw this other controversy out there. Anchu supposedly jumped the start. I have watched that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Do you think he jumped? I must admit, when I saw, I've only seen it once. Uh, they showed it That's during, during the race, didn't they? And the commentators both, um, they sort of called it as a jump. I didn't think it was a jump. I just thought he was absolutely nailed it. I thought he cut a great light. Yeah. I, it was like, it was, it was like drag racing. Yeah. You, you got, you cut a light. You did it right. I watched it, have tried to slow it down as best I could. I swear he goes when the light's green. Let's be honest. You are not looking at the green light to come on. You're looking at the red light to go off. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. It's, yes, it's yes. So I thought that light went away and he went at the same time. So I'm, I'm completely against aren't you having a long lap penalty for having jumped the start. So I'll just be on record for that one. Cause I don't think he did. And it was very reminiscent in fact, and I can't remember where it was. It might've been Argentina, possibly somewhere like Aragon, but Cal Crutchlow had a very, very similar one. I think it was in his final season with LCR. It was so marginal. You think, well, how could you really call it a jump in terms of mm-hmm. advantage? Okay, if you see Lorenzo a few years back at Laguna Seca, I mean, he went before the red light had gone off. Fair enough. I mean, that's a jump start. You know, he's into the first corner, 20 metres in front of everybody else. No question. But, you know, they have a line in in their grid slot. They have a line which they're entitled to bring their front wheel up to. I get that. Why can there not be another line, say, six inches behind, and they just have a little bit of leeway within, maybe not as much as six inches, but because you're going to get a little bit of creep sometime. And if, as you say, Jim, you just anticipate that red light going out, and the green hasn't quite come on a millisecond later, but you're moving. Well, what have you moved? A few, a couple of millimetres? I mean, you could say, yeah, okay, it's a jump. But you should have a little little bit of a zone for creepage, I think. Just my just my view. Again, people shout me down. I've always been the fan of having a creep. For us, a lot of it, 
was always when we were road racing at club, it was like no movement before the light or the flag. Dirt track was, hey, here were two lines. Dirt track always had two lines. You, you had your line. You had the other line back. I think it might have been pr- probably closer to like eight to ten inches. Mm-hmm. It was the classic. Everybody would roll up to the front line. Then they'd walk down. They would pull your front tire to the very, very front line, and everybody would push back. And it was, it was just you were allowed to creep inside that area. I mean, yeah. clutches get hot. You Sometimes, you know, you're sitting there. I mean, it's always one of those things. And and I, I'm all for letting you have – you could compress it down in the scope of what you have in MotoGP or whatever and say – four you got a you know a six inch square box that you got to stay in before yeah. the light goes green yeah exactly yeah it's not good it's not oh i am a wheel and a half ahead of everybody before the light is green kind of a thing and i'd be okay with that yeah absolutely Fan and survey you, <laughs> and you look at you know when people do come up to the grid i mean not everybody does actually get up fully to the white line anyway so i mean you could argue they're losing a bit by not doing that so if they creep a little bit from the line i guess there's a pressure sensor pad which covers a, a reasonable square area under the tarmac there, which is how they detect it, unless it's done with lasers across the line. I, I'm not quite sure how that technology works. If it was a jump start, technically, well, he certainly didn't get any any kind of an advantage out of it, as far as I'm concerned. But it does sort of segue into what I had questioned last episode, which is that having received a double long lap, he still finished seventh. You know, yeah. So how much of a penalty was that? Not that I think he deserved a penalty at all, but you know, the fact remains that Okay, you might say, well, he could have come third, and that's true, but this is Moto3 we're talking about. You can't really predict it outside of Gravara uh, on Sunday, but yeah, you know, I just I, don't I think don't the know. long lap's much of a penalty, really. Yeah, they're, uh, I'm beginning, I first, I always thought that the long lap was a great way to, to penalize a rider for a small error of judgment in that classic case of, is it a racing incident or was he out of control? Hey, I think you were kind of out of control on that one, pal. You're going to go for a long lap just because I think you need to, to sort of equalize it back again. You know, the, the classic is, and it's a formula one example. Oh, you cut the corner. Okay, fine. I'm now going to give you a long lap penalty, which I take up the distance that you did. That sort of squares everything back up again. Mm. So I like it for that, but for oh, you jumped the start. Now you get a long lap penalty or you, cannonballed into the first turn the week prior now i'm going to make you penalize you by doing a double long lap penalty which i don't like because the penalty was previously it's not now Mm. you see what i mean yeah 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 it's all i I get you need a penalty of some kind because you didn't finish the race because you cannonballed it but i i really hate that you pay for this the pay for a sin that happened in a previous race in the race the previous race, you have gone there with a clean slate and there is no, you should not have to pay for that sin. You, you should have paid for it before. Now I get it. You can't find the riders and stuff like that. Cause monetarily they, they, there's not the money there, right? It isn't gaining you anything, but there's gotta be something different. Let me know right in to the show. Well, there are various ways you could do it. And this might be part of the sort of fan feedback survey stuff that people should be shouting for, but you could, for example, tier different levels of transgressions and say, if you do that, you drop a point from your championship you know don't yeah. mess with the racing yes penalize people in the points because at the end of the year that's what really counts and if somebody right. does something really outrageously stupid you dock them a bunch of points and say don't do that again f1 example again there's a card system there's a point system you have you get to a certain number of points you sit out a race yeah i, I then that's fine because now there's a there's a history that you have done stupid stuff 
and maybe you deserve to not be sitting on a motorcycle next week. It doesn't address the you know subjective or objective rulings on these things and the absurdity of the inconsistency that we're seeing, particularly recently. But I think it's a it's got more teeth than the current sort of one lap or long lap, two long laps. You know pit lane ride through we see these things and it's not very easy to sometimes to understand how different penalties get meted out so I, yeah it's just all a bit overcomplicated and a bit inconsistent at the moment so just rounding out motor three then jim yeah we need to <laughs> guevara i think title favorite or is emerging as a title favorite for me at least i think he's coming on so strong everywhere and, it, and if it hadn't been for a little bit of bad luck earlier in the season he'd probably have a fairly handy points advantages at the moment so I would imagine that Garcia is starting to feel a little bit concerned Foggia was back on the podium in second but 51 points behind I mean he's really relying on people having some pretty disastrous luck or injuries I suppose not that anybody would wish that but it can happen so I don't think Foggia really can get that back in unless something unpleasant happens and so I think for me I don't know what you think but I think it's this is now between Guevara and his teammate Garcia, and I think the momentum at the moment is with Guevara. Agreed. It is between those two gas-gas boys for the title. Fajim does not have the bike. Uh, the, the, the KTM is a far superior bike. The, the, the Honda only works at a few tracks this year, so Honda will go back and they'll fix that, and then it'll be even tighter next year. As much as Guevara is looking almost unbeatable right now, I'll, put, I'll stake a claim that Garcia beats him to the title. Okay. I just feel like the, the kid has, is suffering here and he's going to, it's consistency. I think he's just that little more consistent than Guevara right now, but Guevara is on a hot streak. It happens in racing. Mm. You, you see it in all kinds of sports, right? Goalies in hockey, they're on a streak. You can't beat them. And tennis are the same way. You know? they're, they're, they'll run several sets, matches, whatever. They're just, you know, their serve can't be beat. They're just in the form. Yeah. They're in the zone. That's what I'm looking for. They're in the zone. And uh, Guevara appears to be in the zone now, and Garcia seems to be slightly out of it. But it's going to be a – I don't know if it's going to be a, a Fernandez-Gardner. See how I did that? I didn't use a first thing. <laughs> kind of epic struggle to win against your teammate down to the wire, I do think. It's going to be good. It's going to be good, good racing to watch. Agree. It's kind of got the hair and the tortoise feel about it at the moment, hasn't it? And Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Good way to put it. Yeah, with um, Garcia kind of being the top – well, that, that's a little bit of an unfair way of putting it, I suppose, because he's a tenacious racer. But I do agree with you in the sense that over the course of a season, he's a bit more experienced as well. Perhaps that might just see him through. Going to be good to see. Should we talk Moto2? Fun to watch. Let's just get a Moto2, yeah. I mean, really, through practice and qualifying, nothing really to say other than Vietti seemingly struggling again, as we've seen elsewhere. Yeah. But quite frankly, there was nothing else that I really took away from qualifying. I was happy to see Lowe's on pole. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I thought, okay, wow, the guys had so much bad luck for him to get a pole and sort of kind of stop, stop the bleeding, if you will, yeah. and get it back together again. I was very happy to see that. Single lap pace has never really been a problem for Lowe's, has it? It's been Sunday consistency. and He hasn't even been able to do that of late. Yeah. Right. Um, a shout out to Canet to where he qualified. He says, was he sixth or fifth? Sixth. Need to find was sixth. Yeah, which was pretty amazing considering the car crash that he had been in the week prior. Did you see the pictures of his car? I took a note of Googling it and having a look, yes. That car... Isn't going any further than the skip, I think. No, that's correct. Well, the first thing I thought was, wow, him and his girlfriend, who... His girlfriend, he claims his girlfriend was driving. 
Yeah, well, he, he, would, he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> I would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you can only use that excuse for so many times, but you get that opportunity. But was also interesting was it was a Corvette ZR1. Cor- I'm not a Corvette fan, but it was mm. a Corvette. I was like, wait a minute. I, as an American, have this impression that these guys at MotoGP are driving Porsches or some AMG Mercedes or you know yeah Italian exotica or something yeah. yes some Italian exotic here it is it's just plain old muscle Corvette I'm like okay currently he'll be one of the few people in Europe that can actually afford the fuel to run a car like that because <laughs> none of the rest of us can <laughs> getting that way here in the US too my friend yeah 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 uh, so anyway but yeah I mean what he had a broken nose I think he said or something like that because he said he was having nosebleeds during riding and stuff again uh, our friend simon patterson who's you know all over twitter and is very very vocal it does make you wonder how people don't just slam doors in his face in the moto gp paddock up and down the pit lane and certainly in terms of the powers that be but again very vociferous and vocal in his view that you've got riders self-medicating and passing themselves fit so i mean anybody that has seen the pictures of the car as you say jim will quite obviously see that that was a pretty sizable impact, whoever was driving. That's irrelevant. Canet himself said that he'd had quite a blow to the head in that accident and did spend a night in hospital, broke his nose, had various facial injuries and bruising and so on, and fell off, I think, in, I'm going to say, possibly the Saturday morning final practice, because basically his nose was bleeding so much that when he was breaking into turn one, it just was spewing out of his nostril and it caused him to crash. So, I mean, again, you can't take away from the bravery or stupidity, depending on your point of view, of the guys going out and doing it. The question, as ever, remains, should they be out there being past fit to ride? I think that's the pertinent question here. But he passed a medical and was declared fit. So, yeah. uh, no, no. debate at your leisure. Exactly. Dodgy, dodgy decision for me with a guy that's you know can't walk around without a piece of rag stuck up his nose because his nose won't stop bleeding from a massive head injury five days prior. Yeah, it's crazy. I yeah. I don't know. I I agree with Simon Patterson. I think there's some self medical diagnosis going on there, and I I I get the. I guess that's how come I could never be successful at it and was only ever doing it at a club level is that I couldn't turn off that part of my brain that requires that because I have that engineering mind like no my i am too hurt i i want to i just understand that i can't so body, there's a body level is broken. my body is broken needs to be yes. fixed first i only yeah. have yes i only have you know mark marquez has finally come to that realization i only have one body and he has taken the time to correct the pain that he's had in his shoulder and his arm and he's going to miss the rest of the season and maybe even some of uh, next year but that's a whole nother story yeah back to motor two because we're just we're wandering off again i mean not much really to say about the race either it was not the sort of thing that would have helped to have kept you awake if you were feeling particularly dozy lap 22 no, that was a snoozer vietti went down which capped off a pretty lackluster weekend for him but once again i mean i think the main takeaway really at a whole all season in moto two but certainly in terms of the saxons ring round was that everybody's form is just so up and down. I mean, nobody is really punishing Vietti for his off weekends or, or mistakes he's making because, I mean, just to list them out, Augusto, Fernandez, Jim, Augusto, not, not Adrian. Thank you, yes. Yep. Jake Dixon, Aaron Canet, Pedro Acosta, Ayagura, Sam Lowe's, Tony Arbolino, Chantra, Roberts, Bobia. From one race to the next, they'll either be having a brilliant looking weekend or they'll just disappear into virtual obscurity. So, and again, this weekend was very much along those lines. So, and 
I think a key thing that comes out of this for me is that none of those guys are really knocking on the door of the MotoGP teams to give them any sort of real reason to say we need to make changes, which is good because there's not really much room up at the top table at the moment. But if there was one or two standout riders this year, it would be causing a bit more of a headache in the MotoGP silly season and rider market. But I don't think there's, with the possible exception of Augusto Fernandez, I don't think there's anybody in Moto2 at the minute that really... I don't want to say deserves, that, that's a harsh way of putting it, but nobody's really singling themselves out as a person that must move up in 2023. I don't know what you think. Uh, Fernandez, yes, he's definitely saying that he deserves to go. I think, again, all the seats, all the rooms at the end are filled and no one's going to throw someone away for a rookie. So I think he's destined to sit for another year mm. in the class. If anybody has a chance of going up, I think it's Agura. Yeah, as we've discussed many times, but yeah. Only that I think that he has been the most consistent of the inconsistent. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he had a great opportunity to even close that gap even further. I th- what did he knock it down to? I thought it was eight points. Is it eight or 18? I, d- I don't remember. I know he knocked. It's eight points eight po- now. Eight points. Yeah, we'll run through the championships in a, in a moment. Uh, he fine. finished uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So he finished eighth in the race, which, okay, reasonable points, but it looked like a struggle the whole way through, didn't it? He didn't have that customary late race pace that we tend to see from him. But again, that might have been because I think, again, I'm, I'm going to have so to Simon Patterson on this one, but he said it was like a go-kart track on the surface of the sun on Sunday yeah. for everybody. And, you know, so that was obviously going to have had a, an outlying effect for a lot of people's setup and so on. But even so. I completely agree. But... The person who's starting to show some consistency, and I really want to see how this goes at Assen and then what happens after a five-week break, is Acosta. Mm. From Le Mans on, he's always been in the Q2. He's always been very close. I mean, his qualifying here sucked. But then again, we've seen that with him in Moto3. But he had a great race, I thought. Kind of came, he didn't really have to come through the pack per se. But he made a great start, made up a lot of positions. And the only person he couldn't best was his teammate. Now, he barely hung on to it with Lowe's because <laughs> I must admit that the Lowe's two quite stunned, which is one of the things I want to talk about is that final lap and a final turn. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Acosta didn't have any more edge grip on the left. He was done. <laughs> and Lowe's had seemingly saved something for the end to charge back up. And they wound up having a big old touch going to 13. They did. And, yeah. and I was like, that was – that was fair hard riding because it was Acosta wasn't going to give up neither was Sam Mm. and Sam just wasn't far enough up for Acosta to say well I've got a yield and so it wound up you know wound up with with Acosta being second so he's had a win he's got a second now he's kind of looking to be more on form if you will more along the lines would see and you know if he can put you know if he can string three or four together we'll be talking about him in the championship but yeah, the problem with this championship here is nobody has decided that they want to go grab it. Yeah, yeah, which is good in terms of no runaway leader. So, you know, it's going to go all the way down to the wire, which is which is good. Right. But, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating at the same time. There are one or two people that are showing progress. Acosta is one. I'd also shout out for Albert Arenas, who seems to be yeah. midway through his second season in the class now, starting to consistently show some front-running form, although he did drop back a little bit in the race. But he, I thought, was worthy of note. Yep. I mean, you know, other than those things, I spent most of the race trying to figure out, and thank goodness they at least put the cameras from the bikes of Agura and Vietti on the uh, on the pylon 
on the side mm-hmm. to see where they were going and where they were coming from. So that was a good thing. Cause other than that, you know, seeing where they were, I mean, they were, they were not the talk of the weekend. They were completely off the mark Yeah, and consistency wins championships. So yeah, know, we'll see. Maybe Fernandez is going to make a charge. I mean, he was kind of a title favorite at the beginning of the year and had a pretty sort of yo-yo-ish season so far. Okay. He won in the more as well. So starting to gather a bit of momentum. And as you say, Jim, good for Sam Lowe to bag a podium after, in fairness to him, being taken out of a lot of races. He's had a couple yeah. of crashes of his own record, as he tends to do, but he's been unbelievably unlucky this year. Very much a bit like mirroring John McPhee, actually, but in uh, three. But uh, So that was good to see. But otherwise, yes, not a race I'll be re-watching, I don't think. No, not at all. I think we'll go to Moto, yeah. go to Moto GP. Yeah. I think we should. All right. So the first part of it is, this is only because we've been talking about rider fitness, right? Renz tried to ride after having broken his wrist in the crash with Nakagami a week prior. He decided after the, after the first day of practice that, nope, I'm not fit enough to be able to accomplish this, and I am not racing the rest of the weekend. So there was only the Soul Suzuki of Mir when qualifying took place. Again, yep. Ren showing at least some intelligence that I need to let my body heal as opposed to. But again, pass fit by medical to race. Yeah. So went through the official channels, no problem, but yeah. at least made a sensible decision in his own interest, which is better to get better and then race rather than make a bad situation potentially worse. Yeah, the thing that bothers me is that you have seen what a has happened to Mark Marquez, and yet you are paying no attention to what it is. Like, yeah, I, I think I hope when Marquez's career is over, hopefully some time, long time from now, he writes a book about that injury because yeah. I got the feeling that this is sort of in that Wayne Rainey Mick doing injury kind of thing where hey, this is really close to me like not having my use of my arm or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what, this is what nailed Fogarty, right? You know, Fogarty yep. had broken, I don't know, the top of his arm on his right arm. And he went to practice at Phillip Island. Well, he's like, nope, I'm never going to be able to ride again. Yeah. Not at that level. Yeah. Not at the level I need to be. So anyway, yeah. that was there. At the um, very least, Jim, when the Mark Marquez book, you know, does one day emerge, I want to know how big that bloody window was uh, because, you know, that must've been a, that must've been a big <laughs> old window to break his yeah. arm. I mean, I, I guess he's got a big, big house with some nice glass frontage on it, but but that must have been a big ass window, or a very stiff catch, one or the other, or perhaps both. But we oh, need to know knows. one day. We need yeah, to know. I, 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 yes, I, I completely agree. Oh, I mean, that's what I love about you, Rich. You're, you have that Brit humor. Like I want to know about the window. Oh, anyhow, with, um, despite everything being so hot, we did see track records broken. Essentially, by Benyaya, who was wicked fast and qualified on pole. Benyaya seemed to have some form. So, you know, Quattro did what he needed to do. He put it on the front row. Yep. Zarco was there as well to be on the front row. And then Alicia, Alicia got bumped there at the end. But I thought, nah, you know, Alicia will do pretty good. So I was looking for a pretty titanic struggle between, I thought between Benyaya, Quattro, and Alicia, I thought for sure that was where the race was. I mean, I, that was my podium. I thought Alicia was odds-on favorite to win the race, to be honest, going into the weekend. Yeah, I think going in, I felt that. But when Ben Yaya put down those smoking laps, I kind of went, yeah, Ben Yaya is going to be favorite. And all of this all hinges on where Quattro decides to qualify at. If Quattro doesn't qualify where he was, Quattro doesn't do what he did. 
we should say that obviously the, this whole MotoGP weekend at Satchamring, not overshadowed, but very much affected by the fact that the bloke who's never lost there wasn't present. Yeah. And Ducati have never done particularly well at the Saxon Ring. So it was a turnaround for them in terms of getting the front end to work at that track. So suddenly, we, as you say, we had lots of Ducatis at the front end of the grid. So that was... Yep. Un- That's surprising. Well, maybe not unexpected, but it was a little bit surprising. So, and obviously, Mark Marquez not being around to show us what he could have done. Although, as we're going to talk about in a minute, I don't think he could have done anything no. this year. Not with that bike. And I wonder whether or not he was kind of quite pleased not to have to go through this weekend and decided to get uh, off early and get that arm sorted out. Well, that was one thing. Well, let's talk about his arm. He it came out that that the doctors had called him before Magello and said, "Hey, we're ready for you." Well, I'm already at Magello. I'm going to ride the weekend. If, if they had called him on Tuesday before Magello, he'd have left that Wednesday right. and wouldn't have been at Magello. Okay. You know? So we do know that. We do know that he had his first checkup and everyone seems to be very pleased with where it is and that they've now decided to go with some very passive movements, they call it. So I'm mm. assuming someone exercising the arm for him, I, I'm guessing that's what they mean by passive. So they're on the road to recovery here. He seems as though, I don't know, the wound is healing well. I don't know if he's like on a painkiller still or not on a painkiller, but you know, there's no mention of pain, mm. which has been the big problem that he's had is that it's been painful, painful yeah. to ride, painful to move, painful, 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 painful. So fingers crossed here on that one. Yeah, absolutely. What can we say about the race? Again, I wouldn't call it a dull affair because no MotoGP race is dull, particularly not if you're actually there in, the, in the, in the, the first couple of laps were but, good. Yeah. I mean, I just listed out from things, Jim's talked to you about, I mean, Quattraro, 2020 world champion, I think, or pretty much unless something disastrous happens now, his lead is so substantial that I can't see anybody beating him. And compared to the dire kind of predictions that we had about Yamaha, which have in three quarters of the cases have proven to be absolutely on the money. It's just that one guy's doing stuff with that bike that nobody else can do. One, the, the Quattraro has become the Mark Marquez of Yamaha. Yeah. He can do something with a motorcycle that nobody else can do. And I thought this was interesting in this race. The, the, the big thing that was interesting to me was that Quattro was out front. Then Yaya got by him. And then Quattro just slammed that bike up the inside at one. Yeah. It was like elbows out, pure aggression, total confidence. And we say it all the time, champions ride. But really it was because he could have let Ben Yaya go. He didn't need to beat Ben Yaya, but he did. Yeah. And that is that's important. So you know, from there, it was metronomic. It was Lorenzo-esque, if you want to think of it that way. It was just droning out the lap times. And Quattro is so strong mentally now. And he admits having, having gone to a sports psychologist to help him get over some of the, I, I don't know, mental blocks is the right word. I, you know, help him control himself a little bit, stay focused at times and, and, and realize that maybe winning everyone isn't correct and definitely throwing the bike down the road is not going to do you any good either. Yeah. So, you know, he's definitely in the form of his life. That stellar season he had, was it his first year in MotoGP on the Patronus uh, M1? You know, I sort of unraveled a bit in the second half of the season, didn't it? And yeah, I mean, clearly he's a bit older, he's more experienced. He's got a championship under his belt now. Um, so he doesn't have that pressure i suppose in that sense now he wants to retain that title but he certainly seems like a much calmer more sort of more measured guy but you know he still wants to win every single race and as you say jim he absolutely snapped back a sort of troy bayless style you know if you get overtaken, oh, yeah. you overtake yeah. straight back without a moment's yeah. hesitation and he knew he had to do that because if he got stuck behind the ducati then probably although as we're going to mention in a moment something didn't go quite right for the ducati but 
he probably would have had trouble if Banyaya had gapped him. Now, Banyaya, was he offline, do you think? Because there's a lot of different lines around mm-hmm. that first turn. No. But it was a weird crash. What did you make of it? It was bizarre in the fact that Banyaya lost the back end way deep into that corner. And it was off throttle. So something weird happened there. And Benyai has got no clue as to what it is. It's almost as if the ride height system failed him in some way. Now, no one's saying that it is. And this is purely me being speculative. That it just seemed like it just it went away from him so quickly on the back in, mm. in a way that he was not expecting. If it had been on the throttle, it had been like a high side, but it's like a weird low side on the back end, which are very bizarre, which makes me think that some part of the shape-shifting device didn't work. Like either the front end part of it didn't rebound back or came back in the middle of the corner when he wasn't expecting it, but it's hard to see on the video and we're never really going to know, but it was definitely such an odd crash that I really don't know what happened. It wasn't this, but it was almost as if he'd hit a tiny little patch of oil on the track and it just caused a bit of slip and it just sort of gently went away from him it was really bizarre i mean but these bikes are so damn complicated that there are are so many systems and we're going to talk about shapeshifters yet again in a moment Mm -hmm. who knows and certainly ducati aren't going to admit to that i suppose if it was something of that nature but i mean it was a devastating blow for banyar in the context of the championship because what is he now um let's have a look yeah his championship is over 72 points behind yeah not happening no not happening at all so we had we had that moment of it. I think then after that, everything really sort of just settled in. And and I was surprised that Aleish was not going forward. He, he was stuck at that, at that podium position. Was he second for a little bit then, I think? And then, yeah. then Zarco got by, right? Zarco got and, by fairly yeah, early on. And fairly then early on. Aspargo held off Miller pretty much all the way until just towards the end there. But um, he just, yeah. I think he just threw his hands up after the race uh, in terms of a couple of post-race things that I heard that he said which was that he just can't live with uh, Fabio at the moment you know just doesn't have the pace that one from a rider standpoint that is that is an admission of of weakness and I don't think you ever want to tell the other guys that you are weak Mm. Uh, but we know Lace is a different character his emotions are on his not his sleeve it's on the the fine point tip fingernail of his middle finger index finger right (laughs) you know I mean that's where his emotions are they're they're way out there and I get that I understand that but he's also saying something about I read on like crash.net was the bike was just shaking and vibrating he thought it was going to come apart so I don't know if the motor was getting to the point where it was starting to tie up I mean sometimes when they vibrate and shake like that you think that it's a crank bearing maybe you know because now what they've only got is it only five engines for 20 races so every everyone's mm. got to do four race weekends and whatever mileage they want to use or however they wish to do it they could have a motor that's nothing more than their practice motor or whatever take your pick yeah but i was wondering if maybe the bottom end was trying was wanting to tie up a little bit on there he did say um, he was having quite a lot of trouble with you know heavy braking and we did see him go wide several times going into the first turn. And ultimately, that yeah. would be the move that allowed Miller through into third place. So, I mean, maybe a wheel or a tyre went out yeah. of balance or something. I don't That's think he was the possible. only person. And then, again, you know, the track uh, temperature was so astronomically high. I suppose that could have played a role. But just talking to Prilia then, uh, I mean, yeah. Maverick Vinales suddenly comes alive. And he's been threatening exactly. to do it for a few races. And it's, mm. although, who was it? Uh, Gary uh, Shavit wrote in a fairly stinging email a few episodes ago, which we kind of read out most of it although some of it was a little bit <laughs> a little bit unrepeatable in certain regards but um and i don't have a as much love for maverick as i used to have just because of some of the, his behavior and shenanigans of the last year which i think have always put a little 
dot against his name. But nevertheless, getting to grips with the Aprilia gym and had a much better qualifying and had a good start to the race. He didn't sort of go backwards as he has a has had a tendency to do both on the Yamaha and on the Aprilia and was looking really solid. But it brings us to the vexed question of rear shapeshifters once again. Yes. So ban them. I guess you saw what happened. He nearly had yeah. the mother and father of crashes because you don't want to go down there. Um, so I basically, the, the, the shapeshifter just dropped and locked into position um, yep. so badly that after another lap, he just had to bring it in. And you saw them in the pits, didn't you? Trying to press it release down it, and yeah. trying to get it to release, and it just it just wouldn't do it. And interestingly, Alex Marquez quite quietly but retired from the race with the same problem. Mm-hmm. It's the automated systems that are causing the problem, right? So the automatic system on the Aprilia, an automatic system that Honda's developing is not working, right? Ducati's got it figured out. I heard, I read that both Aleish and Maverick, who has been developing the auto system, but both of them are running the manual system on Sunday in the race. Really? That's not what I heard. Right, okay. So, well, that's uh, something we perhaps need to so check. That, but... We'd have to check on that one. Mm. I, I heard that it was that Vigna, or that Vinales is still running the automated system and it broke, but Aleish's system was manual. Now, who knows? which way it is. It could be that could be part of the problems that Alicia was having was with that, you know, was with that part of it or whatever. We don't know. Maybe that's the vibration he's feeling and stuff is the, the system not working correctly. Look, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make this comparison and we'll go into this probably on another show because we'll, we'll talk about, we'll rant on about it. But remember back in the, back in the nineties, Rich, they had the full song and dance formula one car. Active mm-hmm. suspension, anti-lock brakes, automatic transmissions. It was literally just put some guy in there, push a, push a brake pedal and push a gas pedal you anybody could have done it it was that it was to that level of crazy right yeah i feel like and and then the fia finally came through and they banned outright actively suspended cars Mm -hmm. they they threw them away yeah and the 93 yep yes yeah because the 92 williams was the all singing all dancing all dominant end effector of that kind of car they threw it away do you miss those cars no, you don't because the racing's good, right? So yeah. I say the same thing with shapeshifters here. It's a great experiment. It's something that we proved that we could do to a motorcycle if we really wanted to do it. In, as Alan Fleming has said, if the rule is to go as fast as possible around the circuit, then you need that piece of equipment. It's a great engineering exercise. Bravo Ducati and Gigi Delinia, who I admire from an engineer standpoint, you know, I'm amazed by the man. But it's a bit of complexity that doesn't seem to want to work hundred percent of the time, all the time. Now, yeah. if it was active, actively suspended Formula One car, you're in a monocoque, a survival cell. If it's brakes, it's going to cause you a problem, and you, yeah, you're probably going to go off at high speed. Odds are you're going to batter into the barriers, spin around, and yeah, you're going to have some high G's. You feel a little weird, but you're going to come out of it bruised and battered, but you're going to be okay. That same thing happens to Vinales. It pick, I mean, what if that had been at the waterfall yeah. where there's very little runoff to the other side? Yeah. He'd have been flung and thrown into potentially broken bones, the bike coming and hitting him again because he'd been ahead of the bike. Any, any of these things could happen. Speculation, right? We do know, Jim, I have to say, with the way the sport is run, it's going to take a, a, a nasty accident before they actually yeah. do something about it. But they had a clear warning, I think, on Sunday with the crash that Maverick just avoided and fair play to him for not dropping it there. Yes, Initially, it looked like he lost the front or something, but now we know that that was not at all what happened. Mm-hmm. Let's just hope that it doesn't take a massive accident and somebody getting seriously hurt or worse for some brainwave running the sport to say, oh, we need to ban these because they're, they're yep. a safety issue. I mean, sorry, I cut you off, but 
no, no, know, no, you're fine, Rich. I was really on shapeshifters were good. You know, they did give Ducati a competitive advantage, which was the point of developing them. But everyone's got them now, so there's no competitive advantage anymore, or very minor differences between the systems. Let's say they're soaking up a lot of R and D, a massive amount of money, mm-hmm. and all they're serving to do is to create an unwanted safety issue when they fail, as we saw. And we've seen shapeshifters have been the most troublesome mechanical device in terms of failures this year, over and above any other component on a bike. The other th- problem though and again i'm sort of rehashing ground that other people are are saying so this is not a an original thought but it is a an obvious one which is that there are some very good historic venues that we go to which are starting to become touch and go in terms of their viability with the speed of these bikes and if you remove the shapeshifters you slow the bikes down now okay some very clever engineer will think up something new and then they'll speed up again that's the nature of racing but every so often you have to pull them back and you know the shapeshifter is an obvious thing which has little value i think in terms of road use although interesting we're trying to get somebody on the show who has a different view on that who's a technical guru who will be familiar to a lot of people and we're trying to figure out how to get him on for an interview and he has does have a different view on that particular point because i spoke to him about it uh, in the silverstone paddock a few weeks back but for me they don't really add to the racing they're making the bikes faster when they should be slowing them down a little bit on the grounds of safety and they just cost a lot of money and i just don't see the point of it and i wish they would just ban them almost with immediate effect yeah i i agree with it you know there's yeah eh. everybody's got one it's all equal just like ducati de- debuted wings now everybody's got them it's all equal again i'll give you the wings as a concession right that's fine have the wings but again i always think back to the fact that in the days of the 500s you know everybody you had to ride with whatever throttle control you had at your right hand even olivera this was in motorsport magazine with matt oxley it's his series how i ride and he was talking to olivera and olivera says you don't run with you don't ride with traction control on these bikes if you do you're slow Mm. you want to stay away from the traction control okay great so then that must mean that you need to build a motor with a better torque curve you know i mean that's where it comes down to you that was the whole idea of the big bang 500 was now there's a torque curve that the rider could more easily adapt to and all those different things that have happened along the way i hate to say this but the days of mick doing domination and running off and hiding are gone they're long gone okay Mm. we're not going to be there's too much talent coming through the series and the classes for us to ever have somebody who's just going to run off and win races geez mark marquez did that for a lot didn't he anyway (laughs) yeah (laughs) but but shoot to that point apart from that point (laughs) (laughs) But I think each of us would stop and say that Mark Marquez was an outlier of talent that was beyond any other talent we had ever seen before. It was sort of, uh, to think back, it was sort of the outlier of doing in his talent compared to everybody else. It was monumentally far more talented than anybody else that was there, essentially. I think you could say the same about Freddie Spencer. The the talent that he possessed was beyond it. Um, the, The talent that Robert had. Right. There's usually one guy in the era to yes. era. There's usually one guy that There's stands one. out uh, amongst everybody else. And it's starting to look as if, in the let's call it the post-Marquez period, in terms of that level of dominance, Quattararo is starting to look like the guy. Right. I think. Yep. So you're going to have these kind of years, one or two years of somebody not quite there, where everybody else has to up their game to get to that level. And that's 
kind of just the natural progression of what happens. So gizmos and tricks aren't really going to help any to do it in my mind. Mm. You're right to mention, you know, Alan's point, which we've, we've mentioned some time ago, which came out on the last time we had the sub- uh, subscriber Zoom call, which was this is a prototype championship. So anything should go. And I do, I mean, part of me agrees with that, but it's a spec formula in terms of how many cylinders you're allowed. So it's not really a prototype series in that sense. And occasionally something comes along, which is so pointless. I just think, you know, it's, it's, and this is a safety concern now because if one of these things yes. gets a rider off at a high speed in a turn well it, it, you know name a track i mean they've all got high speed turns on and that's the whole point you know i just think somebody has to do something about it before somebody gets really badly injured so uh, let's hope that well personally i hope that happens but i have modest expectations that anybody will be that sort of forward thinking and, and solve the problem before it you know before it bites yeah. but let's see what happens Yep. So where are we in the scope of the race? I think we've I think we figured out that Quattrara has ran off and won this one. Zarco was second. Uh, Miller did nip Belaish at the end, right? With yep. like a lap or two to go. And then it was uh, Marini. Great ride. Was, or after Alicia was Marini, right? Yeah, great ride. Yeah, he had some pace. And like he was the only guy who was going fast there at the end. So, you know, mm. good on him for being there, being there at the end. But yeah, it was definitely after Ben Yaya went down, you knew Quattro was going to win the thing. And you're just kind of figure out, well, where was Alicia going to be? And unfortunately not on the podium. So that means Quattro's leading the championship grows. And boy, how bad did those nine points look right now? Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Anything can happen, though. There's one final talking point before we close this one down, Jim, because we're already... Oh, yes. Yes. ...going to hit two hours. First race since 1982 that no Honda scored a point in a MotoGP race. God, that's back at the old NR750 days. And and it's worse than in actual fact, because that particular race, which was... France, it was probably the Castellet, Paul Ricard or somewhere like that, I would imagine. that Honda boycotted that race for some political reason, so they couldn't have scored any points. So then you go back to 1981, uh, to Sweden, when they genuinely entered a race and didn't finish and score any points. I mean, you wonder uh, what's going to happen at HRC, because Old. things have gone disastrously wrong. So here's my conspiracy theory about HRC. Yeah, I'm interested to hear this. Have you ever noticed that when their Formula One program is successful, their MotoGP program isn't as as successful? Mm, I've never thought of it, but they kind of mm. coincide. They do. They do tend to sort of go together. You had all the time in the '80s with the Honda turbo engine, right? But that was like a Yamaha kind of a thing. They were winning with Gardner, and you know, admittedly, they did build the bikes in '85 for Spencer to win these titles and stuff. But then they kind of fell off the scene a little bit. It's always taken a magical rider to be able to to win titles with a Honda, right? It, mm. You had to be of the caliber of a Spencer or a Lawson or a Gardner or a Mark Marquez or a Doohan, right? Those are the guys that have always won. The guys that can tame the crazy bucking Bronco that the Honda always seems to be. Uh, HRC will have to make changes. They're, they're going to have to move and shuffle their engineering group around, and they're going to have to find someone else to lead that, that system. I mean, it, they're not Yamaha in the sense that Yamaha is going to apologize for what they have as far as a bad motorcycle. They're not that kind of a company. No. Yamaha is a very Japanese, culturally stringent company so their leadership will take it take it the fall and the sword if you will and they will say we failed and i've now resigned or we're, we're moving people around whatever it is hrc is kind of a maverick company anyway honda's never done it the japanese way they've always done it the honda way mm. and i gotta suspect that somewhere back in the workshops you know that they are doing work to make it better next year uh, you know the question 
that I have, Jim, and none of us can actually answer this question, but I'm wondering to myself if they even have the people to sort this problem out. Now, and the reason I say that is that, well, Alex Marquez, his rear shapeshifter device failed in a similar way to Vinales's, I believe. So that ruled him out early on. Nakagami crashed, had a big crash, uh, which doesn't really do his long-term prospects much good. But anyway, moving on. In terms of the <laughs> HRC bikes, Bradle finished, albeit 16th, hence no points. I don't know if you've seen on, on Twitter or Instagram, but he's been posting some pictures of his foot, which has yeah. basically got third-degree burns on it. Yep. Polder Spargo uh, pulled out, basically because his hands were being cooked on the bike. And it would appear that the Japanese factories, and I think they're particularly susceptible to this, all of them, they don't have a way out of the aerodynamic conundrum. And I suppose in an attempt, I'm being massively basic here because I'm not an engineer, but in an attempt to build a bike that's fast, which, you know, they have done, that they've kind of built a bike which can't manage airflow and aerodynamically is not correct. And they're back to sort of the problems that, if you might recall, we saw Ducati having back in, what would it have been, 2003, when they first got into MotoGP, where the bikes are basically cooking the riders. And, you know, they, I don't, th- again, I'm not, be- I don't wish to sound sort of culturally insensitive or anything, but we have said before, and I don't think it's too outrageous a thing to say, that the way that the Japanese management culture works is probably quite, methodical but a bit slow and i think they're being massively outperformed by the european factories now oh big time big particularly time. on aero which again we can have a discussion and won't have it now but you can have the whys and the wherefores about aero creeping in and what does it mean you know in terms of the future and so on and we've seen some issues around it in terms of downforce and inability to brake heavily and overtake and etc etc but honda's problem is a bit more extreme than that because they are using aero but they're not managing the airflow in such a way it's creating it's the old law of unintended consequences yet again and yeah okay it was super hot in saxon ring although it's usually a pretty hot venue because i've been there and it was baking the year that i went but you know when they rock up in buriram in thailand and sapang and places like that they're going to have exactly the same problem again and if you've got riders you basically just have to pull in because they can't they just cannot bear to be on the bike any longer from the point of view of pain and these are some tough tough nuts that we're talking about I don't know how Honda sort of in the short to medium or even possibly the long term solve this problem in terms of figuring out the aero and making the sorts of changes that are needed quickly to get a grip of it. And you wonder how long before heads start to roll, as, as you've just indicated, you know, with some changes in the management. But that ain't going to solve the engineering problem, probably. Yeah, this smacks of 1984 for Honda is what it was. For those of you who maybe haven't been in the sport, let me try to explain. Spencer won the world title on a three-cylinder 500, to which Kenny Roberts still thinks is the proper layout for a motorcycle, but okay, fine. Anyway, the next year, Honda took a bunch of their car engineers and put them in to build their motorcycle as a cross-disciplinary function. Mm -hmm. So in a car, if you want to go faster on a racetrack, you lower the center of gravity. So that's what they did. The engineers took took the motorcycle and they built what, for lack of a better term, is an upside down motorcycle. Okay. The gas tank was at the bottom, the motor was in the middle, and the exhaust pipes ran up over what would have been the gas tank and out under the seat. And that bike sucked. <laughs> I can see why. Even I can get that one. I mean, it's like, okay, the key thing that was missing that the car engineers didn't understand was that a motorcycle has to pivot about an axis drawn between the center line of the two axles. That's where the weight has to be. Now, having been, let's call it stupid or silly with their design, Honda learned and used that knowledge of that failure to create some of the most wildest and best 
production bikes, i.e. the CBR 900, because it was mass centralization. They put everything, the entire mass of that bike was centered about that imaginary line that goes between those two axles. That bike was awesome. Mm. Still one of my favorite. I always thought, always thought that bike was super, super cool. Uh, but, but there was something that they gained from it. They gained this idea of mass centralization, which basically everybody has. If you look, everybody compressed everything to that point. Honda led that way because it was an engineering failure that gained them knowledge that they learned something. I believe they're going to do the same thing here. I think what happened is they've got some aerodynamic guys that are, you know, from the car world or whatever and said, look, we got to solve this aero problem here. And they sat around in a wind tunnel with some CFD calculations or whatever it was they used. And they said, here's the solution to the problem. Cool. Let's put it on the bike. And they did. And again, law of unintended consequences, you know, they hadn't tested it in a anywhere where it was going to be what 37 C or something there. It was like 95 mm. degrees and yeah. whatnot. And so what well, they wound up cooking the riders is they didn't have enough airflow running through the bike. I'm surprised the bikes just didn't blow up to be honest with you. Yeah, if it's that true. hot, mm. I mean, there, you think that those motors would be damaged or compromised in some, some fashion, Yeah. but they're going to look at it and they're going to say, okay, this was wrong. But the question is, how do they fix it? I suppose the one option that they've got, as we've seen them do elsewhere, is just go and get you know their rather sizable checkbook out and go and poach some people from the European factories to try and understand you know the CFD or the wind tunnel work or whatever it is that needs to be done to solve some of these problems and get some stability back on that bike. I don't suppose Mark Marquez is ruining his decision to sit the rest of the season out at the moment. No. And I question why, for example, they're not bringing somebody where there's not a clash. They're not bringing somebody like Ika Lekoona across from World Superbike, as I say, on the weekends that don't clash with his duties for HRC in that paddock to ride the bike, perhaps instead of Stefan Bradle, you know, because Lekoona is quick and, you know, he was on the sure. territory bike last year. He's having a really, really solid season in World Superbike. He's been confirmed for Honda in August at the Suzuki Hour. So he's clearly highly regarded though. And I think it would do them a lot of good to get somebody else that's quick and with recent knowledge onto that bike to try and help them find a way through what is a pretty dire situation at the moment, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And remember when they started with the 800s, Honda was nowhere. They didn't win an 800 title till what, the very last. Did they ever win an 800 title? I'm not sure that they, they did. did. I'm not sure. I'm not or sure maybe the last, either. maybe the last one, but um, maybe no, the they were nowhere one. at the beginning. Yep. Uh, well, for the majority of the 800 period, mm. if not yeah, the they were nowhere. Um, yeah. Hey, look at it this way: the Honda can't win a Supercross series. <laughs> and it's that it's been that's been going on. I think that's getting close to like 20 years. Wow. I mean, so Big Red is not Big Red that we all. It's it's not your mama's Big Red anymore, right? You know it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's things have changed. And they are missing some key ingredients. Again, you know, they did poach Jenny. What was her last name? I can't think of her name. But Anderson, she was, wasn't it? Jenny Anderson. Yeah, that's it. I, I wanted to say Wilson for some reason. But they poached her from KTM to do the suspension work yes, and whatnot. I'm sure. That's what I was alluding to. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that they're, I'm sure that they're going to go poach someone from Ducati or whatever, or Aprilia for that matter, because Aprilia has actually been amazingly good. They appear and, to be the ones at the cutting edge of the aero work at the moment. Right. Um, if you look at that new fairing they had on the bike this week, which appeared at the Barcelona test a yep. week or so ago with this kind of um, ground effect kind of... And Suzuki had new wings on their bike, or at least Mir had them for practice. Yeah. And that seemed like that was... One of the things I've kind of thought about with aerodynamics is that if it's elegant, it works pretty well. 
Mm. Honda's doesn't look elegant, but then again, neither does Aprilia's. Ducati's is very elegant, and I know it's not just because it's Italian. It's ta- your it's their Italian styling. It's it's functional, right? When was the last time you saw a pretty looking Formula One car, there, Jim? I mean, aerodynamics, right? Well, these new ones are better. <laughs> you know, uh, yes, true, but they're ground effect. They're not really sort of aero in the sort of way that they have been for a long, long time. So. I think there's a difference there, and it's a small one. Those Formula One cars are not using the air as much as they're trying to modify the air flow around certain areas to get it to some place that it does have an effect. Yeah. I don't think we have that in MotoGP. I think we just have a, a wing to hold the bike down or a strake or whatever you want to call it. That's strake, rake. They're all these aerodynamic terms that are out there for the minds that are greater than mine. <laughs> but you've seen it happen many times before with Honda. They lose their star rider to an accident, which is what happens to them because they somehow step beyond the realm of their control to a motorcycle that is uncontrollable or unrideable, I guess is the better way to say it. Yeah. And they go back and they just can't know. There's nobody that can win on the motorcycle despite their best effort of trying. Try, 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 try. Oh, hey, look, here's this really good talent. They shove that kid on the bike and suddenly, boom, magic. All right, cool. We're done. Problem solved temporarily. Problem solved temporarily. And um, they're right there. They they have a big struggle ahead of them, Mm. uh, especially without Marquez there at the helm. I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen at Assen this weekend. So yeah. we've got, we got a back-to-back uh, people, This, as most people will know that's listening to this. But So we're at Assen in the Netherlands this weekend. I'm reasonably confident that it'll be quite a lot cooler than it was at the Saxon <laughs> Ring. Um, hopefully it'll be dry and sunny, but it's you know generally a sort of probably a mid-20s kind of a ambient temperature deal at this time of year in the Netherlands. So it will be very different to what they faced last weekend. So let's see how Honda and everybody else gets on. But I guess we ought to think about wrapping, <laughs> wrapping this up. But yeah, we should. I'm... It's been a long one. For a show that had nothing to do with racing, we sure have yes, a lot exactly. of things to talk about. Really. I mean, I think we've covered most of the things that I had on my list. The Honda was the one I you know, particularly wanted to talk about. I just want an honorary mention for Jack Miller, mm-hmm. taken to the escape route on the warm down lap or cool down lap I should call it you know in order to answer a placard that a fan had had up during the weekend for a set of his gloves I mean that guy's you know box office isn't he so oh, yeah. although I've, we've all got our view about whether he should have been retained at Ducati or whether it's the right for him to go to KGM thank goodness he's in MotoGP for a couple more seasons at least because you know he Agreed. is so good for you know the sport in terms of its public facing side and he just looks like a lot of fun I'd love to go out and have a beer with him Oh, I bet it'd be fantastic. I, I would be, I would be paying for the pints. No question. Well, definitely, yes. <laughs> so, with all that being said, Jim, I guess um, we probably ought to think about wrapping this up and invite people to f- give us some feedback, some questions, as we always do, and subscribe and donate if you can. We'll be doing another show fairly early on next week. Uh, I'm actually yeah. away this weekend, so I'm going to have a bit of catch up work to do in terms That's of fine. watching the races because I'm off for a birthday weekend at a nice hotel. Well, um, you enjoy that, sir. Yeah, that'll be cool. 50 um, comes around only once. So, and have a pint on me. Just know? as a quick aside, because I know you'll be interested in this, Jim, and I guess any of the UK listeners will probably be familiar, but there's a very good National Cold War uh, exhibition, and they've got the, the V-Wing bombers on static oh. display there, so the three nuclear bombers that were developed in the 60s. So I'm really looking forward to seeing those. So I'll, I'll make a point of putting some pictures up on Instagram uh, and Twitter uh, for you to have Excellent. a look at on that not bike racing related but there's still a you know big machine that's fast and noisy that's so that, right that works for me so i think that's i think that's kind of it for now jim unless that's you've got it, anything yeah. to add nope don't have anything to add um reach out to the show guys with any questions comments and stuff at motopod at motopodcast.com you can hit up richard myself on social media i'm at moto rgv instagram and twitter twitter i can't even get it out twitter <laughs> yep 
uh, I'm at Richard Jowett. Uh, it's all lowercase on Twitter. I think there's a capital in there in Instagram, but you'll, you'll find me if you search anyway. So, yep, keep in touch. And Jim, yep. I'm going to let you close out with your favourite scene. Right. Yeah, well, everybody ride safe, and we'll catch you after uh, Assen. Goodbye, everybody. Cheers for now. Cheers.